in the writing of this book, I wanted to meet people where they were and build a bridge back to places where um, maybe we need to be. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Author, gardener, and woods walker Hannah Anderson wrote, More than a metaphor, the natural world is a living, pulsating experience of truth that surrounds and enfolds us, teaching us deep realities without words. She puts many of those wordless realities into words in her new book, The Turning of Days, Lessons from Nature, Season, and Spirit. Hannah Anderson, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Oh, I am thrilled to be here with you. So I, I'm so excited about your book, uh, Turning of Days. Um, and uh, before we started recording, I was telling you how much I enjoyed it and how much I, I really, I love nature writing. It's just, it's just one of my, it's one of my things I just, just love to sit down and, um, and see the way that, that writers like you pay attention to the world and, and keep looking at it until it starts to, to, um, sort of reveal its secrets. Um, so thank you for taking the time to, and, and paying enough attention uh, to, to where the, the world starts to, starts to reveal its, reveal its secrets, as I said. Um, so how do you describe this? When people ask you what this book is like, how do you describe your book? Well, I think I start by telling folks that it's a bit of um a divergence from my other books, because I do have folks that read my books, um, my previous books, and I want them to know up front that this one was a bit of an exploration for me. This is a collection of essays, which I think is the biggest difference that folks will see. Um, it's a collection of essays around the seasons as we experience them here in Southwest Virginia. And my hope is to help draw readers' attention to the natural world, but also to kind of model a habit um, mm. or even maybe a liturgy of experiencing natural revelation. So I intentionally chose um, an essay structure. So there's seven short essays for each season. And my hope is was that people could read this throughout the seasons, or they could read maybe one a day through a cycle that they were um, working through in their own lives. And that's different than my other books, which tend to be more thematic or um, topic-driven, making it a specific argument, trying to uh, teach something. And I guess with this book, with Turning of Days, I really just wanted to invite readers into a way of being more mm -hmm. than um, communicating really specific truths or, or teaching more theologically that way. Um, you say a, a way of being. Tell me about that. You're, you're inviting readers into to what kind of way of being? Well, it's interesting because it's a way of being that I think my husband, Nathan, and I existed in, but didn't understand or recognize until even the last few years. So I'm going to have to back up a little bit to explain this. Um, in 2016, I released a book called Humble Roots, which was an exploration of um, the idea of humility and how the scripture calls us to rest through the embrace of limits. And to kind of work with that idea, I used a lot of agrarian and botanical 
identical imagery. Mm -hmm. And it really came together in a very organic way. But I found that readers were captivated more by um, the imagery than maybe necessarily what I was trying to communicate. (laughs) And and that really hit home for me because I had readers writing me saying, I bought um, a tomato plant and I'm growing tomatoes for the first time. Or mm-hmm. um, my husband gave me an apple tree for my birthday and we've planted it in our yard. And I saw this kind of awakening and this longing in people for something that I took for granted. Um, my husband and I, my husband, Nathan, who did the illustrations for the book, we both grew up um, in more rural settings, mm-hmm. lived fairly close to the earth. Both of our parents had small homesteads, and that was actually one of the things that we understood about each other when we met. But I think we didn't understand how unique that was or how significantly mm-hmm. that had shaped the way we move through the world. Um, there were just ways of relating to nature, of seeing nature, of interacting with nature that came very instinctually to us that we didn't understand may not necessarily be shared more universally. So once uh-huh. I began to recognize, oh, when I'm out in my garden or I'm out in the woods, from childhood, this is the way I've been kind of shaped to think and relate to it. Mm-hmm. How can I share that? How can I invite other people who maybe didn't have that experience? How can I model that for them and invite them into a way of relating and existing within the natural world that opens it up for them beyond just maybe a source of inspiration or a respite? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you you say this is i think in the introduction you say this book is a bit of a paradox because it attempts to use words where nature doesn't and so you're you're trying to put language to well to the nonverbal right to the nonverbal world um, and and you if i if i remember the context right really what you're talking about here is you're you're working with the the difference between you know special revelation of scripture and general revelation of nature, you know, the idea that, that God reveals himself in nature and he also, you know, specifically reveals himself in scripture. Um, but, but also this idea that you're using words where nature doesn't, it occurs to me that that, that paradox is really the center of all writing, right? Not just you know, the whole point of writing is to say, here's this thing that's not verbal. I'm going to try to put it in, in words. So that's not a question. That's a, that's a topic, and the floor is now open, Hannah. What would- <laughs> yes, I, I, you're absolutely right that this is something that should be, uh, we should understand about all writing, that this is part of the practice of writing, of taking something that we see or experience or observe, putting it into words so that other people can experience or see or understand what we have seen or understood. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that what happens in nature writing, when this was the particular paradox that I was forced to in writing this, is that you can't do, you can't take shortcuts with that. Like it really forces you to lean into the old dictum to show, don't tell. Yeah. And I think with perhaps other topics or maybe other more um, human-centric experiences, we rely on the fact that the other person actually um, has that category. And so Uh we take shortcuts and we tell a lot more often 
than we show. When we come to the natural world, who's just standing there in front of us, (laughs) not using words, as writers, it puts us in this position of of really having to show what the natural world is showing rather than just telling it. And I found that to be a challenge, um, both in my observation skills, but also my writing skills. Uh And it was just the challenge I needed, I think, to develop my writing in other ways as well. Yeah. So, okay, I I don't, I want to ask this question the right way. Um, Well, I'm just going to ask it and we'll figure out what the right way is after I've I've already asked it. But, but you you know, one of the things that you're, that you talk about, again, this is just an introduction. Hopefully we'll make it past the introduction of this conversation, but the introduction is great. So, um, uh, you talk about this idea that, you know, when we, when we do both the, the book of nature and the book of scripture, right? It's tempting, you know, there are people who say, well, I've got scripture, what do I need with nature? What, what, do I, what else do I need to know about uh, who God is from what he reveals about himself in scripture? And then there are people who, says, who say, um, you know, I, if I can experience God at the top of a mountain, what do I need with a book? And, and you're, you know, you're saying you, you need uh, you need both. You ask the question, what, what will you miss if you don't encounter God in all the ways he chooses to reveal himself? What will you miss if you don't embrace the paradox of revelation? Um, but I think that we might, it, it's worth asking. Um, I think what you mean by embracing the paradox of revelation requires putting, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe I am, requires putting words to you know, the, the the book of nature translated that into words is that necessarily um what it means to embrace the paradox of revelation is, is there a way to embrace it non-verbally um which you know so stra- i mean I, we might say as writers that's just our job to put it into words and so you know anyway no, go ahead. no great question and i think it's a question that really has been brought to us by modernity and the way that we um, learn and know things. And I think, you know, we exist in a larger cultural space. And this just isn't just within the church or within religious spaces. We exist in a larger culture that has put a lot of emphasis um historically, you know, on the rational. It's, I think, Mm -hmm. therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things I'm trying to help us question or explore is that we already have a disposition toward learning um, or understanding who God is in these more word-based categories or in a way that has been um, delivered to us through um, you know, a very rational, rational, logical experience and thought frame. And I think that is 100% legitimate. Mm -hmm. What I worry about within modernity though, is this loss of enchantment, this Mm -hmm. loss of understanding that there are things beyond the Mm -hmm. rational, that there is a supernatural. Um, And what I have wrestled with within my own experience of of wanting to honor 
fully honor God's specific revelation of himself with Christ as the Logos, the word, um, with the scripture Mm -hmm. as the expressed um, word of God, to also understand that it is God who created the world and said, if you listen to the birds, if you consider the lilies, if you ask the beasts of the field, they will teach you as well. And so I think the thing I have wrestled with and I'm inviting readers to wrestle with is that it is the the scripture that tells us there is something to be learned from the natural world in ways that we may not be accustomed to learning. And so I have that dilemma, and then I write a book about it, which I think is just (laughs) the irony of the whole project, because I found myself often saying, well, wouldn't this be better facilitated through walks in Mm -hmm. um, the fields? Shouldn't I, you know, invite people to hike? Shouldn't I, um, you know, my husband and I have talked about that a lot of the ministry of taking people on nature walks and putting them back into God's creation. And so what I kind of thought in the writing of this book was that I wanted to meet people where they were mm-hmm. and, and build a bridge back to places where um, maybe we need to be to say, you are accustomed to using words and language to understand this. Let me start there and write something that's going to point you back toward the natural world and and inspire you and captivate you and capture your imagination so that when you are finished with an essay, I don't want you to turn to the next page. Uh I want you to go outside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my goal in writing was to say, okay, you're going to pick up a book and I'll write the book that I hope you'll put down yeah. and go outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You sat inside to write a book that you hope will then send people outside. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- these kind of ironies are always at work in, in, in whenever we try to do to do writing that's not just an invitation into more a more cerebral. I guess whenever we're not we're writing something non academic, mm-hmm. and and I mean and the best academic work also by the way sends you out into the you know into the the world God made. Um, but I think there is a as you as you've already said there's a paradox in that. Um, so um, we our tools as writers are words, but hopefully we are pointing uh, to, to people, people to something that's, that's even realer than, than words. Um, yes, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, you talk about, you use the phrase field work, that you're inviting the reader into a kind of field work. Um, tell me, you may have already s- summarized what you mean by field work, but, but tell me, what are you talking about? What are you inviting readers into? What I'm inviting them into is their own observation and their own writing, or maybe their own sketching. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is set up as short essays, and the majority of each essay is simply um, my writing about what I've seen, describing it, giving a little more um, scientific background, perhaps, to what's happening in that phenomenon, mm-hmm. and very little of the essay is um, 
you know, about this deep theological truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt a little nervous about that writing for a Christian audience at first because I didn't know how much margin people would give me. And then I remembered that this is exactly what Jesus did in the parables, yeah. where the majority of the communication had nothing to do with the truth that he finally delivered, that the truth was embodied in the essay or in the story. And so what I wanted to do was give people permission to think that way. Yeah. Understand that there is something deep and spiritual about paying attention and observing and considering. I think of how Christ says to us, consider the birds of the field, consider Mm -hmm. the lilies. And I also wanted it to be personal enough that the reader could say to themselves, well, I can do this. I can go out and look. I can go out and observe. And I think with my my husband's illustrations, we wanted to keep them simple enough that a person could say, well, I can pick up a pencil. I can yeah. draw what I see. Yeah. And so when I say it's an invitation into a kind of field work, I mean, I want my experience of the natural world to say to you, you can have this too. Mm-hmm. It's not about living through me and my experience. It's about yeah. modeling something that's accessible and available um, to all of us. Yeah, that's great. Um, the way you were talking reminded me of something that, that Eugene Peterson said, and that was, if, if, if you're doing spiritual life right, it's just life. <laughs> it's not spiritual. It's, it's just life. And um, and I, I love what you said about, about the parables. Um, and it's not just that it's for, for some of those parables, Jesus never gets around to saying, and here's the spiritual application. It just says, here's this story, you know, you yeah. see, I'm here. Um, and by the way, I, I love your husband's illustrations. I think they're so, they're so great. Um, and, I, and it's funny that you said it might inspire people to go draw something. Cause that's the way I felt. I thought, you know, I mean, I can't, quite do what he's done, but, but it, it certainly wasn't intimidating. It was, it was not something that made me think, oh, well, I can't even imagine. Like the, I remember the picture of the, the morale or how do you say it? Moral or morale? The mushroom. Which one do you say? Morale. Morale. Um, I I think I could do that. That was a, that was a, it's such a, I just love the little textures. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track here. Um, You know, you, you talk about not just observation with field work, but also repetition, um, which again is so important for, for writers being willing to, to be repetitive, to, to just sit down and do, you know, not just observe, but go back and observe again, or, you know, not just write today, but write tomorrow too. Um, so good stuff. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I decided to structure it, um, as this set of essays through the seasons, because the seasons themselves are, um, you know, cyclical and there's this Mm -hmm. deep pattern to them. Yeah. And also I did want to say, look, you can read or observe the same thing through the days and you don't lose anything. There's always something new being revealed. Um, So that kind of habitual, returning, I think was really important to, to the shape of the book. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. Some of your essays are about being in the woods and some of your essays are about gardening. 
And there are other things in there too, but, but just in terms, you know, I was, I've been thinking about the fact that being in touch with one way to be in touch in nature to, with nature is to walk around the woods. And another is to garden. And those are two very different ways of interacting with the natural world. Um, and so um, how has gardening influenced your writing process or the, let's just, there, there's the question. How, how has gardening shaped the way you write? I don't want to overstate the significance of gardening in my life, but I have learned so much about my own vocation and writing from the process of gardening because I feel like it is this quintessential attempt to accomplish something in partnership with a broken world. Mm. And all of the patterns and habits that are invested in cultivation um, have their parallel in every other vocation that uh, we engage in. And so in particular with writing, I'll just give you a a small example. Gardening teaches you um, that a seed has to fall into the ground and sit under the earth before it germinates. And I think about my own process with my projects or getting an idea and and wanting to immediately develop it and getting stuck with it and coming to terms with the fact that, no, that idea just needs time to germinate. It's not that I'm a slacker or I haven't given enough time to it. It's that some projects and some ideas have to lie under the ground until it's time for them to sprout and come to full growth and fruition. And so it's even something as simple as that has given me the category of patience mm-hmm. with my own um, creative projects to say it's okay if I get an idea and it's not until six months, a year, five years later that it actually comes into plant and yeah. into flowering. Yeah. So something as simple as that really has taught me a level of patience. It also teaches you the limits of what you can do. Right. So you're you're working not just on your own. You are literally partnering with the forces around you, with mm-hmm. creation, all under the hand of a sovereign God. And yet you are so dependent on these forces. You're dependent on the weather. You're dependent on... Um, you know, any kind of brokenness that would come in and steal away mm-hmm. your work. And so for me, even within my work, I, I learned that writing is not just about me. Um, it's mm-hmm. not about whether I mm-hmm. do sufficient work to produce something. It is about all of these other forces that I'm in partnership with, as well as ones I'd rather not be in partnership with. All of the things that oh. are beyond me that I can't control even if I give myself fully and completely and do what I need to do to write a beautiful thing, there are other forces that can scuttle that. And that has nothing necessarily to do with me. And, and submitting all of that to the hand of Providence yeah. and trusting him to bring forth the fruit of it. Yeah, that's great. And there are forces that can scuttle it, but there's also forces that you can't, do the work without the help of those forces, right? I mean, I cannot grow a tomato by myself. I mean, I can barely grow a tomato with, you know, 
the help of all the forces around. But, but, uh, but yeah, the, I, I think every writer needs a garden, um, preferably a small one. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, one that I've had a, you know, I had a, just a little patch of, you know, some cucumbers, some tomatoes, some herbs. And, um, and one thing I loved about that was there's just a limit how much you can do every day on your garden. You just kind of have to do, do your part, pluck some weeds out, you know, pull off some hornworms. And then, and then that's all you can do that day. And, and, and then you go back the next day and pull off another hornworm or two. And, and that was, that was very instructive for me. Um, and I just love a garden. So much of my work, um, you know, feels like it's happening in my head or in the ether. And it's just great to have some, some connection to, to real things, to the dirt and to the, the leaves and vines and things. Um, yeah, gardening and, and writing, I think, is such a such a great match. But as you said, I mean, whatever the, gardening in any vocation. Um, but I love the way you put it that that it's you're in co- cooperation with the forces you know, in a broken world, um, but you still depend on them. And I think you're right that um, particularly for writers, so much of our work is solitary. So much of it is inside of our head, or we have to get away to do mm-hmm. the work. Like we have to isolate ourselves to be able to write the words. And it can become very um, disorienting. Or I've found in my own life, you can lose a sense of which way is up. You lose that mm-hmm. kind of, um, you're almost weightless. You're in this, yeah. this environment that lacks gravity. And, and what I've found about gardening it does tie you back to real things, but it also pushes you to remember that even though so much of your experience of writing feels isolated and feels like you're working on your own, none of our work is happening alone. Yeah. Um, and that can be kind of a, a false flag or a false notion for us that, mm-hmm. yes, we do work as individuals a lot of times with the writing but none of our writing could come to its fullest formation without partnerships with other people yeah yeah well the the one thing you said about the relationship between gardening and writing that just blew my mind i just so if we spend the rest of our time together talking about this that's going to suit me fine um, you talk, you, you tie the shame of the gardener to the shame of the writer. And I, I know exactly, I, I mean, that, that just rung so true for me in my limited experience in gardening, there's a, there is shame involved in it. Uh, when, when, it, you know, in July, when the weeds get ahead of you and the, um, and as you said, when you feel like maybe I should have taken that, that weekend vacation, because now I've got weeds, I, I can't seem to get on top of. Um, and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, if you don't mind, I've thought a lot about this kind of shame that plagues gardeners and writers alike, the shame of doing your best and it's still not being enough. The shame when your dreams don't produce as you hope, the shame of it all being out there in the open, right out there for every passing soul to see, your weedy beds and wilted crops, your wormy peaches and blighted apples, the shame of not being able to exercise dominion and failing at the one task the man and woman were given to do, guard and keep the garden. That, wow, that's, there's so much going on there. So 
Let's talk about it. So I remember first recognizing this thing that I call gardening shame um, growing up and watching my dad work so hard through the season of his garden. And it starts with expectation and late winter where you're picking out what you want to plant and it just it's a joy and it's an anticipation and you move into spring and you you put your plants into the ground and everything is just you know the sky is the limit like you're going to have this wonderful garden this year and then as you said by late summer um where it's not quite ready to harvest you reach this kind of point of singularity where the brokenness the forces around you overtake all of your work and all of your hopes and your dreams and you find yourself just keeping up and you're trying to outpace the brokenness to reach the harvest you're trying to um, not care that there are weeds everywhere and everything looks like you've neglected your work mm-hmm. um And you feel this deep, deep sense of shame. And it's so profoundly different than what you felt at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The the hope and the expectation um, that you start gardens with or you start a writing project with. And you get to this point in in the garden or the project and you just feel like, why am I even doing this? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a fool for thinking I could do this. And the thing about gardening, and I think about writing too, is that it can't be hidden away. So (laughs) you garden out in the open. You garden where other people can see your work. And writing is a similar kind of work where if we're writing for other people, they're going to see. And and they're going to see the places where it's not what we would want, or they're going to see when it doesn't um, sell as much as we'd like it to, or when it's, they're going to see it. Everyone else can see our shame just out there. Yeah. And reconciling that both in gardening and in writing, I feel like... (laughs) It's the work of my life of, yeah. of believing, um, you know, believing grace, believing um, that I'm not, my value is not tied to this ability to produce or to hold back the brokenness and, and coming to terms with the fact that this is to be expected. Mm-hmm. This is what it means to exist under the curse where the ground is explicitly like the, the scripture literally says, this is what you should expect. You're yeah. going to work by the sweat of your brow and the land's going to produce thistles and thorns for all your good work. This is what it means to face the futility of the curse, but also to then reconcile that shame and to still have hope to still move forward and to start the garden again next spring. Yeah. We're in, we're in the middle of Lent as we're recording this, um, a time when we acknowledge our limitations, right? <laughs> and, and hopefully come to terms with the fact that our limitations um, aren't a bad thing. 
and that they they summon us to 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 reach beyond ourselves, um, and uh, and and the gardening shame and the writing shame, um, you know, there's such thing as healthy shame, you know, a, a an acknowledgement that yeah we don't we don't have everything we we don't have all the resources we need, and we have to depend on other people. We have to depend on God. Um, and, and, you know, but also as, as, as you said, we, we start, we started in hope. We get in this trough in the middle where we think we're just going to, you know, we've bit off more than we can chew. And, and then there's a harvest, which may not be the harvest we were envisioning at the beginning. <laughs> right. Because that's the other wonderful thing about gardening and about participating with, um, the natural world and under God's sovereignty is every year is different. Every harvest based on the natural elements, the weather patterns, when, um, you know, when spring starts, when the storm comes through, when it's dry, all of those things create a different harvest every year. And, and yeah. that's one of the, the things that I find both, um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety with it, but there's also this kind of joy to say, well, let's just see what comes. Let's yeah. see what produces this year. Something will produce. Yeah. Will it be a good year for tomatoes or will it be a good year for beans? Most of the time, it's not a good year for everything. Yeah. Um, but there's there's a little bit of humbling that happens knowing that you can't pick the right year for tomatoes, even if you want them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. What comes. Yeah. One thing I love about my perennial patch is I don't know what's going to come up this year. Mm. You know, um, and, but, but to be able to rest in that. And, and by the way, you know, the fifth year of the perennial patch, to just again, to, to return to your idea of not just observing, but repeating, right? to come back and continue to work on the perennial patch even though I don't know what's going to come back next year, um, it gets a little better, a little easier. And, and as I, as I remember that things do come back here, mm-hmm. it feels it's a little easier to put, put the work in than it was mm-hmm. last time. Um, and all this, uh, you know, everything we're saying about gardening, it feels like we, you know, we could be talking about writing. Um, and as you, as you've touched on all, all our other vocations in life, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to spend a lot. This isn't the last time I'm going to think about the connection between gardening shame and writing shame, because that just resonated so, so clearly with me when I saw that, um, because boy, my, um, I, I will not be winning any prizes at the, at the state fair for, for my gardening. And, and yet it's just a, a little better every year, you know? Um, well, Let's let's talk about. I'm really interested to hear your answers to my to my um, perennial question: Who are the writers who make you want to write? So I have thought about this, and I'm afraid I'm going to give you um, a complicated, maybe atypical answer. Excellent, because I've I've allotted extra time for your answer to this question. So I will tell you. There are a lot of readers, uh, writers that I love to read. Mm-hmm. So I love one of my favorite novelists is E.M. Forster. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I love writers who have a strong sense of place or character. I love cozy novelists. Um, but as I was thinking who makes me want to write, it's yeah. not those authors. Mm-hmm. I read those books and I love to receive what they're giving to me. And I find that they um, give me a place of respite. And I don't want to mimic them. And I often feel like I couldn't if I tried. So when I come across a writer who's done it, who has succeeded in all this that we have talked about, I usually feel, um, I don't know that I feel intimidated, but I feel, well, I don't need to do that because they've already done it. Mm -hmm. Why would I put my hand to that? So here is my atypical answer. The writers who make me want to write or the writers who, for whatever reason, have told a overly simplistic story Uh or have reduced a narrative or have left out nuance. And when I read those writers, I think, no, we must tell a better story. So I actually am inspired to write where I see gaps. Yeah. And where I feel like someone must tell this story differently or better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know what that reveals about me or my motivations for writing other than it's that classic where, where you know, your gifts and the needs of the world meet. Yeah. And to see the needs of the world to be, the world doesn't need my words but it does need better stories and better explanations and better narratives. And insofar as my words can be part of fulfilling that need, that's what gets me up to writing. That's what keeps me in the chair. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. I I have a list of not very good books about amazing topics that I don't know that I'm the person to write those, those books, but um, you know, but that that really gets me. I'll, I'll read a story and think that is such an amazing story. I wish this person had done this a little bit better. And and it, I, I get what you mean. And you know, you, I don't think that. I hope that doesn't mean anything bad about you because it that would mean it would mean something bad about me. Um, but that, that makes perfect sense. Well, I do want to ask you though. So this is a different question. Um, let's talk about nature writers for a minute. Who who are the nature writers that that get you excited and? Um, I want to add to my list of of nature writing books. Well, um, obviously, we have to say Dillard. Um, But one of the things I want to just point out about Dillard that I love about what she does, and I think um, she does so well, is she tells us what to direct our eyes to and our attention to. So um, Dillard actually was lived in Roanoke area where I live when she wrote Pilgrim at Tinker Creek Mm -hmm. and Tinker Creek is maybe 10 or 15 minutes from my house. And so knowing the area, I also know what Dillard didn't tell everyone what she left out. And I find that even more fascinating because what she did in her work was look at the right things. Yeah. So, so that I think is fantastic. Um, the gift of Dillard is pointing our attention to certain things. Um, other nature writers, you know, 
do different things for us. One of my, um, one, one book, my husband and I both love is, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name, but it's David Haskell. Um, he took a, uh, square yard or a square meter um, in his backyard and he observed it every day for a year and wow. so he came back to this place and um, I think his ability to teach us rep- repetition um, this was it's the forest unseen and so I learned from him the importance of returning to the same place and seeing how it changes over time yeah. Did he pick an unusually interesting square meter or is it just like, was there a tree there and a rock or? No, it was just in his woods. And, and what, I mean, we're talking at the level of getting down, laying on the ground, looking at the leaves, looking yeah. at the insects that happened to be walking through that space at that time when he came back that day, yeah. you know, so it, it wasn't anything remarkable other than it, it was just that the whole world is remarkable. And I think by, uh, we had mentioned limits earlier that a lot of times the best work comes from placing limits on ourselves and restricting our vision or restricting ourselves to this particular space and then really observing it in depth. Um, So uh, his work is, is it teaches a a slightly different thing than what Dillard is teaching Uh us. Um, my husband and I also like, my husband's a birder, so he's always going to gravitate toward, um, birding books. Jennifer Ackerman, um, is a great naturalist, uh, when it comes to birding, um, Julie Zikafus, um, as well. Um, so there is a wealth of, of writers. I don't think they always hit the, you know, the headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, each teaches something slightly different because, you know, we talk about naturalist writers as this category, but I do think as all of us in writing, we come with a very particular access point and each is going to give a slightly different um, perspective, but also skill. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you read Brian Doyle? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. Well, you need, you need to read Brian Doyle. Uh, One Long River of Song is such a, a beautiful book, a collection of his essays. And then Margaret Wrinkles, a Nashville um, nature writer. She's fantastic. Um, and then one, uh, I love um, Ecology of a Cracker Childhood about, about the ecosystems of South Georgia um, and also the human systems of South Georgia um, by um, Janice Ray. She grew up on a, in a junkyard in South Georgia uh, with, with, very peculiar parents and, uh, and sort of took to the woods to, to sort of, it's, it's a wonderful book. Anyway, um, I love nature writing and I love your book. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for being on the Habit Podcast, Hannah. Well, it's been a delight. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. 
The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.